0: Our reading today is from the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he saw with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed at me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, church. Before we dive into the passage, I'm going to say a short word of prayer, and then we're going to go straight into Revelation chapter 7. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our ears that we may hear, open our eyes that we may see, and open our hearts that we may believe. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. It is reasonable to suggest that the strongest argument against Christianity is the existence of Christians themselves. Gandhi is famous for saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians look nothing like your Christ. It is true that Christians have perpetrated injustices, and sometimes those injustices, those wrongs have occurred in the name of Christianity. But when considering the state of Christians in those injustices, two things need to be kept in mind. First of all, We cannot escape that reality. The first call for Christians is to admit that that is true. Christians have done injustices, have done wrong, as Christians, and sometimes in the name of Christianity. But the second thing to be mindful of is that Christianity also has the self-corrective tools to critique Christians in a way that no other tool outside of Christianity can do. That is to say, the strongest critics of Christians are Christians. You think, for example, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, whenever the nation of Israel went astray, God raised a prophet within the nation to criticize the nation and to steer them back to a path of righteousness. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ speaks against the Pharisees when they perpetrate injustices, when they do wrong and say, you are not meant to do that. As a leader of God's people, you are meant to live to a standard of righteousness and justice. We can think of Martin Luther King Jr., who, when speaking to white Christians in the South, doesn't tell them, abandon your Christianity. The reason you're doing all of this is because you're Christians, but rather he says, you're not being Christian enough. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Karl Barth, both during the time of Nazi Germany, speak to the silence of the German church and say, you need to be true Christians, you speak up against this evil. The strongest critics of Christians are Christians. Now, the reason I mention this is because we are in a series in the book of Revelation. We see in the book of Revelation a picture of a reality behind all reality. And now in chapter 7, we're given a picture of the church. And so I wanted to say off the cuff straight away that whenever we discuss the church, we are going to have our own experiences, our own questions, our own thoughts about the church that will be on the table. But Revelation 7 is going to give us a picture of the church that is going to be on the table as well. In Revelation 7, we find out that the church is more than we expect because the church is not what we expect, the church is not who we expect, and the church is not how we expect. And those will be the three points that we're going to look at. So first of all, the church is not what we expect. In verse 4 of Revelation 7, John hears a number, a number of the sealed, 144,000. But then he looks in verse 9, After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number. So he hears a number, then he sees a group that cannot be numbered. That word order is intentional. The contrast between a number and a group that cannot be numbered is intentional, showing the expansive nature of the church. That John would hear a specific number, but when he looks, he sees something that cannot be numbered. Now, that expansive nature of the church is not just here in Revelation 7, but it's all throughout the Bible. So in Genesis, for example, when Abraham is speaking to God, he says, I just want a child. God says, I'm going to give you more children than the sand at the seashore. I'm going to give you more children than the stars in the sky. So Abraham looks up to the skies. Can you count the number of stars in the sky? Of course you can't. Can you count all the little pieces of sand at the seashore? Of course you can't. That the church, the community of God is always more than we expect. And that's why it's not what we expect. Um, Gregory uh, Thornbury is a a previous professor, a previous president of the King's College in New York City, and he wrote a book uh, called Christianity and Doctor Who. If you haven't seen Doctor Who, I highly recommend it. Slightly controversial statement, it's probably better than Harry Potter, but that's besides the point. In this book, one of the things he talks about in, in in the TV series Doctor Who, it says that Doctor Who has this um, uh, uh, time machine called the TARDIS. With this time machine, he can travel um, from location to location, through space, through time. Now, whenever anyone is introduced to the TARDIS, what they see is a 1960s British blue police box. So they think, this is a very small box. This is a very small time machine. So they open the box, and they walk in. But when they walk in, they see this grand space. And it trips them. This is a police box. How is it so large? So they step out. Okay, police box. and They walk back in grand space. They step out again. They walk around the police box. Then they go back into the police box. And every single time, everyone that enters the TARDIS for the first time says the same thing. It is bigger on the inside. And Gregory Fonbury accurately says that Christianity is the same thing. Christianity is always more than what you expect. It is always expansive throughout the Bible, not just with Abraham and not just in Revelation, but even in the Old Testament, Isaiah, God says to Israel that this message of the gospel is for the nations. You will be a light to the nations. Jesus Christ himself says to the disciples, you will proclaim the gospel and you will be witnesses of me, not just in Jerusalem, where they were right then, but in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, that the church is expansive and the community of God is always more and bigger than what we expect. It is always bigger on the inside. But not only is the church not what we expect, the church is not who we expect. So in verse 9 we read, And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. When John looks at God's people, he doesn't just see a particular culture. He doesn't just see the Christians in Ephesus, or the Christians in Galatia. We could even say he doesn't just see Central West End Church. He sees Christians from everywhere. This fourfold breakdown of nation, tribe, people, languages is intentional. The number four is the number of the world. So it's literally saying from every single part of the world, God's people are found. Now, this is one of the unique features of Christianity. Christianity that Christianity gathers people from every nation, every tribe, from every people and every language. If you think about religions right now, Christianity is the only religion that does not have a cultural, geographical centre. You can think of Islam is still predominantly even now in the Middle East. Buddhism is still predominantly in Asia. Uh, You think of Hinduism, which is still predominantly in India. But when you think of the cultural, geographical centre of Christianity, Where is it? It's nowhere, because it's everywhere. In North America, Central America, South America, in Europe and Africa, in the Middle East and in Asia, it is everywhere, there is no demographic, cultural, geographical center of Christianity because it gathers people from every nation, all tribes, all peoples and languages. But more than that, Christianity is the only religion that goes out of its way to constantly affirm your cultural heritage. This is not the first time that this fourfold breakdown comes up in Revelation. We saw it in Revelation chapter 5, but it's also throughout the Bible that God says to Israel, you'll be a light to the nations, that Jesus says to the disciples, you'll go to the nations. As a matter of fact, at the very end of Revelation, we read that the kings and the nations will bring their glory into the new heavens and the new earth. That is to say, all the cultural good of your nation, of your tribe, of your people, of your language, it's here forever. Your culture is here forever. I will not cease to be British Nigerian in the new heavens and the new earth. You will not cease to be Japanese. You will not cease to be Indian. You will not cease to be American. John could look and figure out that some people were speaking French. Some people were speaking Japanese. Some people were speaking English. He could see every language. You can see nations and tribes. That Christianity goes out of its way to affirm your cultural heritage. Now, here's why this matters. If you're not a Christian, you're thinking, well, that's all good and dandy. Christianity is very diverse. It's a global church, whatever. Here's why I think that matters for you. As you consider the claims of Christianity, as you think about um, how you feel about the church and God's community, the next time you raise a question or an issue or a concern about Christianity, here's a question that I want you to question your question with. Does my concern with Christianity, does my issue with Christianity, or my question for Christianity, does it apply to the global church? Could I bring this objection, this question, to Christians in India? Could I speak about this question with Christians in, um, in Georgia? Could I speak to Christians about uh, this issue who are living in Russia? Or is it really more to do with my particular cultural context? Now, this doesn't answer all your questions about Christianity, but it does say that some of the questions we have about Christianity have more to do with our cultural context than Christianity in and of itself. If it's a question that would not make sense to a Christian in Nigeria, then it probably means that it has more to do with your experience of a particular subculture and not Christianity in and of itself. Now, if you are a Christian and you're thinking, how does this passage apply to me? It does two things. First of all, it displaces your culture. Notice that these people are gathered before the throne and before the Lamb. They're not gathered because of their culture. Their cultures are gathered around the Lamb. When you enter God's community and when you enter the church, your culture is displaced. That means you're being forced to think, in what ways does Christianity challenge my cultural prejudices and my cultural biases? In what ways does Christianity displace my culture so that I can gather with other cultures before the Lamb? But also the second thing for you if you're a Christian is that it asks you this question. In what ways does Christianity affirm my culture? In what ways does Christianity allow me to lean into my Britishness, my Americanness, my Japanese-ness? In what ways can I actually find cultural good within my culture? Because we already see that Christianity affirms and values the nations and the tribes and the peoples and the languages because it intends to keep it forever. So the church is not what we expect and the church is not who we expect. Well, thirdly, we see that the church is not how we expect. So going back to verse 4, John says that he hears a number of the sealed, 144,000. Now that number in verse 5 to verse 8 is followed by a series of breakdowns of the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from um, Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, from Gad, from Asher, um, from Manasseh, and he keeps going and going. This is not only a particular nation that has been broken down, but actually what John is doing is following an Old Testament pattern of gathering a people up for an army. In 1 Chronicles 27, you see an example of this, of um, the people of Israel being gathered up, tribe after tribe, to prepare for war. So the picture here is not just a particular number, but an army. An army is being gathered. The church is an army. Now, you might say, exactly, this is the problem with Christianity. It it looks at itself as a domineering army that's going to conquer the world. But let's not be too quick, because in verse 14, when this group is described, we read, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white and the blood of the Lamb. So this army... As an army of martyrs. As a matter of fact, in uh, 387 AD, there's a Latin hymn that was written either by Augustine or Ambrose, uh, early church fathers. It's called the, the, the Deum Lordimus, and if you grew up in a Catholic or Anglican church, you might have sung this during the daily hours or the daily office. In this hymn, there's a line that reads, uh, the white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Augustine and Ambrose, from the very beginning, understood that the army in Revelation 7 being referred to are martyrs. So when we read about these are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation, it's referring to persecution in the early church period. It's referring to those who were witnesses of Jesus Christ to the point of death. And so what is, first appears as to be an army, we find out is an army made up not of soldiers with spears and swords and shields, but an army made up of martyrs. That's not how we expect victory to come about. I mean, I'm not a military genius, and I don't know about you, but when I think about how armies win, they don't typically win by dying. They don't typically win by laying down their swords and laying down their shields and exposing themselves and saying, come at me. But the church is not how we expect. That victory for the church is in the pattern of the lamb. In Revelation 5, we saw that the lion of Judah was the slain lamb. And the church follows in that pattern. That victory for the church comes by faithful witness and persevering faith of Jesus Christ to the point of death. Now, what does that mean for us? Because I know you might be thinking, martyrdom is a noble um, cause. To lay down your life for your faith, of course, is noble and praiseworthy. But we live in America and the likelihood is that we're not going to die because of our faith. The martyrs, the martyrs and, the mar- and martyrdom in the early church for us tells us that the martyrs are exemplars of what persevering faith looks like, what true faithful witness is. These are examples for us to show us what it looks like to be witnesses of Jesus Christ and to attain victory through persevering faith. There's a theologian in London uh, called Samuel Wells, and he writes um, regarding martyrdom He says that martyrdom is an over-acceptance. Essentially, he says that martyrdom is classified by three words and one uh, symbol. And? Question mark. He says, martyrs look face-to-face with death and say, and? They look face-to-face with the Roman Empire when threats are made against their lives and their families, and they say, and? Because the martyrs understand that the end of their life is not the end of God's story so they can look face to face with death and say, and is that all you have? You think you will take my life, but you don't realize that you are giving me victory by taking my life. That actually, my robes will be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so you have nothing that you can take away from me. How do you take away from someone who can never lose anything? You can't. And the martyrs understand that, and they say to us that we should understand the same. That as Christians on this earth right now, While we see this picture in Revelation 7, we live it out right now as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. That we look at the world, we look at consumerism and say, and? We look at cynicism and with hope, we say, and? We look at injustice and we bear faithful witness to justice, saying that injustice will not win in the end. And so we can live as faithful witnesses, following the example of those who have passed through the great tribulation. Now, how do we get the power to do that? Notice at the very end. It says that they have washed their robes and made them white. And you would think that this is their action. You know, they are faithful witnesses because of what they have done. It's all down to what you do. But the robes being washed is not from their action, but it's from where in which it is washed. At the very end, it says that they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. At the end of the day, the church is a faithful witness of Jesus Christ because it is soaked in the blood of the Lamb. That the Lion of Judah was a Lamb that was slain. That the one who was rich became poor so that we could become rich. That the one who knew no sin became sin so that we who were sinful could become the righteousness of God. The Lamb has set the path by laying down His life for us. And in His blood, We find the power to bear faithful witness to him because in his victory, we find victory because we have laid down our lives in his death. The lamb is the one who creates an unexpected community. You see, the church is an unexpected community because the gospel is an unexpected salvation. Who would have thought that the way to victory would be through death? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we find that in considering the church and thinking about the church, um, we do have our experiences and questions, but we also see in Revelation 7 a picture that isn't what we expect when we think about the church. We ask that as we think about, for ourselves as Christians, what it means to be the church, that we look at the examples of those who have gone before us and find strength, that we would find the power to be witnesses in the blood of the Lamb. And as those who are not Christians, uh, we think about what it would look like to actually think about the church through the lens of Jesus Christ and through the lens of God himself. And that that would raise for us new questions and new considerations that would take us one step closer into this community that is far bigger on the inside. Amen.